You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning. Welcome to our third and final week on the book of Esther. Don't worry if some of you were not here for week one or week two, or maybe you've just forgotten anything and everything about the book of Esther. We're going to give a little bit of a review before we jump into our text today. Let me just remind you first that in this book of Esther, one of the most unique aspects of the story is that God is never explicitly mentioned in the book. And that is so unusual that several years after the book was written, there were additions that people came up with to include in Esther. Now, we don't have them in our Bibles today, but some additions to Esther were added to make God mentioned in the book because it was so unusual. In fact, one of the greatest biblical archaeological discoveries in history was the discovery of what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a discovery that Indiana Jones himself would be very proud of. Um, And when you look at what was found there, there was a Jewish community living around the Dead Sea. And so among the several documents found there, there were fragments of every single book in the Old Testament except for one that was not found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. I bet you can't guess which book that was. That's right, Esther. And most scholars believe that the reason why that might have not been a part of that community is because God's name is not mentioned in the book. It's that unusual. Actually, this is probably one of the reasons why I like Esther so much is because even in my own life, in my own circumstances, God is not explicitly and visibly present. But I know that behind the scenes, He's working, and I have to trust that. And this is what we are looking at when we look at the book of Esther. So just in review, the Jews, who were God's people, were living in exile in a land called Persia, just to kind of keep it in your mind about where in the world that is. That was in what is modern-day Iran. And so living in exile in Persia uh, under a king named Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, decided to throw a party, and uh, he wanted to parade his wife, Queen Vashti, in front of his party guests. Well, when he summoned for her, she didn't come. And you don't do that to the king of Persia. So therefore, she lost her position as queen, probably lost more than her position as queen, but we're not told uh, real clearly about what her future was. It's just she's not mentioned again in the story. And so what happens is the king decides he needs to replace the queen. So he commands all of the young virgins in the kingdom to come to the capital city so that he can choose a new queen. And so in this process, one of the young virgins that was there was a Jew, a girl named Esther, also known as Hadassah. And Esther had a cousin named Mordecai who had adopted her when her parents died. So cousin, but he adopted her as his own daughter. And Mordecai gave some some wise words to Esther and said, Esther, when you go to the capital city, you cannot reveal that you're a Jew. It's not going to go well. So keep that hidden. So that's what Esther did. 
And so Esther goes with all the young virgins of, of the land, and the king is very impressed with Esther and chooses her to be the next queen. During this time period, Mordecai uh, discovers an assassination plot being made on King Ahasuerus. He reports it, the king's life is spared, and the assassins are executed. And the events were recorded in, in the book of daily events, but nothing was ever done for Mordecai for, for his heroic act in reporting that and saving the king's life. Well, we'll come back to that. That's part of the story. So, in addition to all this, you have the second in command uh, under King Ahasuerus, whose name was Haman. And Haman was really about, well, Haman. He was very stuck on himself. He wanted everyone to acknowledge him, to bow down to him, uh, to give him honor. And so when he comes through the streets, Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. And Haman becomes so enraged that killing Mordecai is not enough. He wants to kill everyone that's like Mordecai. So when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, Haman says, I'm going to destroy and annihilate every Jew from the face of the earth. And so he takes out what is similar to dice today uh, called lots and casts them or, or rolls them to determine which day would he take out all of the Jews. Well, that day turned out to be the 13th of the Jewish month known as Adar. And he convinces King Ahasuerus that the Jewish people are really not good. They need to be eliminated. And so uh, he also helps by paying 375 tons of silver into the king's treasury. And the king says, yeah, that does sound like a good idea. So he signs off on it. And so on the 13th day of Adar, all of the Jews in the kingdom of Persia will be wiped from the face of the earth. So Mordecai goes to Esther when he finds out about this and says, Esther, you've got to do something. You are now the new queen. You, you, you've got to talk to the king and, and beg for the life of our people. Because even if, if you think as queen you're going to get away with this, you're not. Because as soon as they find out that you're a Jew, they're going to kill you too. So you've got to do something. And so she's faced with a dilemma because if she approaches the king unsummoned, she can be executed. And so, meanwhile, while she's trying to figure out what she's going to do, the king has a very sleepless night. And this is the, before the days of NyQuil. And so, the next best thing is he calls in to have the, the daily record of events read to him, Not a nice little bedtime story to help him go to sleep. So, he has people reading through the daily records of what happened. Well, it just so happens that the part being read to him at that point was the part where Mordecai had discovered the assassination plot and saved the king's life. And the king says, did we ever do anything for this Mordecai? And they're like, no, I, I don't think so. And so he's like, well, we got to do something. So the next day, Mordecai is honored with the highest honor you can possibly receive. This is exactly what Haman wanted for himself Yet his arch enemy, Mordecai, is the one that is praised and honored by the king. This makes him even more angry and wanting to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. And so Esther ultimately rises to the occasion in revealing to King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, that Haman wants to kill the people, the, the Jewish people. The king becomes enraged at this, and so he ends up 
hanging Haman on the gallows that Haman had constructed to hang Mordecai. So not only do we see Mordecai honored instead of Haman, Haman is hanged on the gallows that Mordecai was supposed to hang on. And so all of this is happening as we enter into the story in Esther chapter 8. Now at this point, the king's signet ring is given to Mordecai, taken from Haman uh, and given to Mordecai. So Mordecai is even higher uh, in honor and given power. And in fact, Esther is, uh, the book of Esther is only 10 chapters long, and chapter 10 is only three verses, and it's all about the power and fame of Mordecai, uh, because this is the position that he rises to. So even though Haman is hanged, <clears throat> and the, the problem is the people the Jewish people are still under this edict that they're going to be annihilated on the 13th day of Adar. So Esther pleads to the king to come up with a counter edict uh, to reverse what was happening. And so we're going to take a brief look at what the original edict was to annihilate the Jews, and then we're going to see the counter edict, which is from chapter 8. So first of all, the original edict back in chapter 3, verse 13 says, Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. So this is the original edict to destroy the Jews. Now look how similar the counter edict is from Esther 8 verses 11 and 12. The king's edict or counter-edict at this point, gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar." Do you see how similar these two edicts are? It's a complete reverse of what was originally going to happen. The Jews were going to be eliminated. Now the Jews have the right to eliminate the eliminators. And so when you look at this, note that the words destroy, kill, and annihilate were used in the original edict and in this counter edict, a complete reversal of what Haman wanted to accomplish in destroying the Jews. Now, the question we're left with is, okay, we've got the edict, we've got the counter edict for them to defend themselves, but what actually happens? Well, we're going to look at that in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. Even in verse 5, it says, The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. Do you notice that this is exactly what the decree had stated that they could do? That we just looked at in chapter 8, verse 11. This is what happened. They end up killing tens of thousands of their enemies. Haman's sons are even hanged on the gallows. All of their enemies are killed. But something that's unique about this particular passage is in chapter 9, three different verses make it very clear, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. 
Now, why does that matter? Why is that mentioned three different times in this chapter? Well, it's because they, they had the right to do it. We know that from chapter 8, verse 11, when we saw that counter edict. But why did they not lay their hands on the plunder? And why is it so significant that the writer mentions this three different times? Well, I'm going to take you back 500 years earlier. 500 years earlier to the time of Israel's first king, King Saul. King Saul was told to destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. He was told, destroy the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were people that when the Jews came out of Egypt in the Exodus story, not only are they being oppressed by the Egyptians trying to flee from them, but now the Amalekites are picking them off as they're fleeing from the Egyptians. And so they're not giving the Jewish people any relief. And so God was angry at the Amalekites and said, I'm not going to let you do that to my people without punishing you for it. And so God told King Saul, I want you to destroy them. I don't want you to take plunder. I don't want you to let anything live. Kill all of them because this is the judgment that they deserve. So King Saul does most of that. But he decides to keep the plunder because he's like, you know, this is, I don't want this to go to waste. We can make good use of these animals and this equipment and things like that. So he keeps that. Not only does he do that, but he spares the king of the Amalekites. And his name was King Agag, a rather unfortunate name. But King Agag is spared. And the question is, what does this have to do with Esther? I mean, you're talking about King Saul and, you know, back to the story, the Exodus story, and there's a guy by the name of King Agag that's king of the Amalekites. What does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning with the story of Esther? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if you think about what Haman, when Haman is introduced in our story way back in chapter 3, verse 1, Haman is described as an Agagite. What an Agagite means is a direct descendant of King Agag. So think about this. If King Saul had been obedient to what God commanded him to do in destroying all of the Amalekites, including King Agag, perhaps Haman would not even have existed. So what we see is disobedience has consequences. We see some pretty dire consequences of the disobedience by the Israelites from 500 years earlier. But even though disobedience has consequences, we also know that God is gracious and forgiving. We see the grace and forgiveness of God in the the fact that God enabled the Jews to have victory over their enemies despite this earlier disobedience. The Jews did not take the plunder. Now, why is that emphasized three times here? Well, the fact that they remember this story. They remember King Saul. And they didn't want to repeat the same mistake again. So they did not take any plunder. And that's why the author of Esther emphasizes this. They are faithful where Saul was unfaithful. They were obedient where Saul was disobedient. And so because of the Jews' victory here, they come to celebrate something known as the Feast of Purim. We're going to take a look at that in chapter 9, starting in verse 24. It says, For Haman, son of 
Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pur. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Again, what this is saying is this dice that, or, or lot that was cast was known as Pur. We have more than one, it's known as Purim. And so this day that these dice were determining to destroy the Israelites becomes the days that they are victorious over their enemies. And so this is important for them to remember what, what was done, how they got the victory. So the question is, we know that Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim even today. Uh, it usually falls in the month of March. This year it's going to fall along the same days as St. Patrick's Day. It'll be March 16 and 17. So most of us in here are probably not Jewish. So the question is, what does this have to do with us? Well, how do we apply something like this? Well, at Mount Sinai, in the Exodus story, the Jewish people were founded as God's people. There was very little alternative uh, to being God's people. They were out in the middle of the wilderness, okay? They were God's people set apart and literally set apart because they were out by themselves. Under Persian rule, however, each Jew had to make up their mind whether they're going to continue being Jews or whether they would follow the traditions of the, the surrounding nations as their identity had all been but taken away, uh, in be, being in exile. And so were they going to continue to be Jewish or were they just going to blend in and be Persian was really the question. And I think Mike Cosper has a, has a good quote on this. He says, Purim then celebrates this rededication as God's people. It's a wisdom-filled return to tradition, to habit, and to liturgy, a reinvigoration of the diaspora Jews' spiritual life. Now, the word diaspora is not something I use in casual conversation. Uh, it means a scattering. And so these were talking about the Jewish people who have been scattered away from the, the promised land, away from their homeland. And are they going to live up to being Jews or are they going to be something else? And so Cosper goes on to say, while the church faces growing opposition, we pray for awakening and renewal in our hearts. We embrace the vulnerability of our identity as God's people. We renew our commitment to the formative work and traditions that are both our heritage and our future. And we hope and pray our presence is filled with the aroma of Christ. What Cosper is saying here is, will the church cave to an anti-Christian culture? Will the church be distinct people pointing to a distinct God? 
or is the church going to blend in just like everybody else? We are at a crossroads as God's people. Are we going to be different? Are we going to stand out? Are we going to point others to a God who saves, a God who owns the truth? Or are we going to go with whatever truth seems most popular in the day? Now, as we take a step back and we look at Esther as a whole, what is the story of Esther, this, this great reversal? I want you to just picture being a Jew and hearing the edict that you and all of your family will be annihilated on a single day. The Persians are in power. You are powerless. The second in command, Haman, absolutely hates everything about you. You've already known nothing but exile in a foreign land under foreign control. Now you're facing imminent death. Everything seems to be working against you. As we've mentioned, God is not explicitly mentioned in the entire book of Esther. Yet everything gets flipped because of his invisible hand working through all of it. Mordecai seems to understand this when he says back in Esther 4 verse 14, when he's talking to Esther, pleading with her, you've, you've got to take action, Esther. You, you've got to go to the king and, and beg for the life of, of the Jewish people. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, this last phrase is something that a lot of people have heard of this. A lot of people quote this for such a time as this. And this has been an amazing phrase to remember that God places people in key places in our world at key times to carry out His will. But I can't tell you how many years I read over this and completely ignored what came earlier in that same verse that I was just up. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. Esther was very key in making all this happen, as you have seen in this story, whether you've been here all three weeks of our study on Esther or this is your first time. As we looked at this, her position as queen was essential to saving the Jewish people because she pleaded with the king on behalf of the Jewish people. And that's what started turning things around. But what Mordecai knows here is even though Esther was in the right place at the right time, God was not sitting up in heaven chewing his fingernails going, I sure hope Esther pulls through. I sure hope she steps up to the plate because otherwise my people are going to be annihilated from the face of the earth. No, Mordecai knows that even if Esther is not faithful in stepping up to the plate, God is going to provide salvation for His people from another place. The question is, Esther, are you going to be a part of this or are you just going to get left in the dust? That's the question. So what we've got to remind ourselves of is God's will is not going to be thwarted by any human obedience or disobedience. Ultimately, God is going to have happen exactly what God wants to happen in the long run. And so this reminder is that God is going to deliver His people, even in the face of what seems to be insurmountable odds. Consider this. 
a small ragtag group of rebels are being hunted down and destroyed by a galactic empire or the First Order. Yet somehow, when all hope seems lost, the script of the, of the Star Wars story gets flipped and they defeat their evil oppressors. How about this? A small fellowship represented by different races from Middle Earth is against impossible odds as they attempt to destroy a ring that brings both power and destruction, all while facing swarms of evil orcs and others who outnumber them by the thousands and tens of thousands. Yet, somehow this fellowship of the ring accomplishes their purpose. This is the stuff that great stories are made of. And it's no wonder because it's the way God demonstrates his ultimate power every time. So also we see this great reversal in the story of Esther. The enemies of the Jews are the ones who end up being destroyed, while the Jews are the ones who end up being saved. Haman becomes the first real and most popular hangman, yet Mordecai is honored. A complete reversal. The story of Esther ends completely the opposite of the way that the story seems to be heading throughout this entire book. Appearances are not all what they seem. God is in the business of flipping the script. In a way, the story of Esther points to the story of Jesus. The salvation of God's people and Esther point to the salvation of God's people in the Gospels and beyond. Karen Jobes, who a New Testament scholar, really adds a lot when she says, the powers that seek to destroy Jesus are themselves destroyed by him. A reversal that teaches us to make fun of even the greatest enemy. And that enemy in 1 Corinthians 15 is referring to death. Against all human expectation, Jesus takes the death we deserve so that we can take the life he deserves. Today isn't the end of the story either. The powers that seem in control are not in control. The trajectory that seems inevitable is not inevitable. The way of this world may not go in the direction that we want. In fact, it's almost assured it's not going to go in the direction we want. Circumstances in our lives will involve tragedy. All of this will make us question God at times. Does God really care? Is, does God exist? Is God good? But this is not the end of the story. Whether it's looking at circumstances in your own life that you are suffering through, or you're looking at, you flip on the news media and you see what's going on in our world, it's very easy to get discouraged or to question, is God really there? And as I said at the beginning, this is why I love the story of Esther so much, is because God is not explicitly mentioned, yet they have to rely on the promises of God to take them through. And in many ways, we have to rely on the promises of God to get us through our own personal tragedies and also in, in a world that is completely messed up. And so we know that God is sovereign in 
every circumstance. He is sovereign over every single person and power that's out there. And he's going to work out everything in his timing and in his way. I can tell you that most of the time when God works in my life, it's not the way I would have drawn it up. And I can tell you, it is almost never, in fact, I cannot think of a single time when God came in my timing of what I thought should happen. But I will tell you, God is almost never early, but God is also never too late. He comes in His timing that is beyond my comprehension. And He will work all things together for the good of those who love God, those called according to His purpose. You see, when Jesus came and lived, was born in a feeding trough in a little podunk town called Bethlehem, this is not the way I would have drawn up the Savior of the world coming into the world. In fact, the, the first people who come outside of the family that come to the, the birth scene are shepherds. Okay, we're talking about not the most popular people in society back then. Jesus grows up and lives a life of sacrifice, goes to a Roman cross and dies. It is very easy to look at that and go, well, you know, I, I can only imagine the disciples walking away from that and going, well, what do we do now? I guess we'll just go back fishing, which is what they did. And I, I think about them, I'm like going, hey, you know, as they're walking and talking with each other, like, hey, we had a good run for three years, right? Being around Jesus, that was really cool, but like, now he's gone. Like, I, I guess we just got to go fishing again. But what we know is that is not the end of the story because he comes back three days later, conquered sin on the cross, conquered death in his resurrection. And when we look at the way God works in this, this is the most unlikely of ways to do it. This great reversal that we see, everything that seems like hope is lost, and yet God has been in control, and this has been his plan from the very beginning. We may not understand the circumstances we're living in. We may not understand the world we're living in. Lord knows that. But God is sovereign over every circumstance, and God has it in His control. Nothing is going to escape His ultimate plan. And His plan and, and my plan often do not line up. But what I can know is I can remember the times when, beyond the shadow of a doubt, God pulled through. And we can read stories such as Esther, and we go, in a hopeless situation, God had it under control the entire time. So as we reflect on this, know that His promises come true. Know that He is working all things that include a lot of bad stuff. He's working all this together for the ultimate good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for loving us and, God, for the story of, of Esther that demonstrates your love. God, we don't understand why you allow things to happen sometimes in this world, Lord. There's so many tragedies in our own lives and, and that we see in the lives of others. And, and God, it's, it's difficult for us to comprehend that. Why would you let things like that happen? We, we don't know, and sometimes we don't get those answers uh, even this side of heaven, Lord, but what we can know is that you ultimately win. You've already sealed the deal on the cross and through your resurrection. God, we've read the, the back of the book, and you win. Lord, help us to hold on to that promise 
and know that even when we can't see you working, we know you're in charge. Or may we look to you and know your love and your sovereignty as you work through Jesus into our lives through his death and resurrection. Or I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, that they would know that you are the Savior of the world and you are the one who gives life and purpose. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.